You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Accounted For, everyone. This is a podcast that shares and inspires unconventional career journeys. Please help the podcast grow if you're a true fan by rating it on iTunes with a nice, a nice five stars and also leaving a kind review. And if your podcast listening app that is not iTunes allows you to rate or leave a review, please do so. There's so many out there that I'm le- losing keyword track, but they all have these kinds of functions that so I'll always appreciate it. And you'll, you can also help the podcast grow by just telling a friend you cherish about the podcast if the friend is curious on different kind of career journeys, they're struggling in their own journey, help that friend out, suggest an episode that you liked, one that they might find interesting. And yeah, help the gr- help the podcast grow that way, help your friend grow that way. It's a win-win for everyone. Okay, so today's conversation is with Ben Yoskovich. He is the Chief Product Officer, aka the CPO, and founding partner of Highline Beta. Highline Beta is a venture capital and startup co-creation company based in Toronto. And in our interview, we pan through Ben's extensive 20-year career as an entrepreneur, angel investor, and startup executive. After graduating with a psychology degree, Ben started by building a web service business back in the late 1990s. And after building a service business, he went on to build a product-based company. And then he started one of Canada's earliest accelerators that used the lean startup methodology. And Actually, one of the companies from that accelerator actually got acquired by Airbnb as well. And then after that, he went on to become the VP of product at two separate startup companies. The first one was Go Instant, which later got acquired by Salesforce, and then Virage Sale. He did this while also co-authoring the Lean Analytics book that's been translated to more than, I think, four different languages. So as you can tell, he's had a very extensive and very fascinating career all throughout the startup ecosystem and just technology in general. And so we go through the major learnings he's had from all his various ventures, his failures. He talks about how as much as he's had successes, he's had many more failures. And so we try to dive deep into that. His philosophy of building organizations and what he's learned from his continuous journey from being an entrepreneur and then joining startups and then starting becoming an entrepreneur again and also investing in companies. And we talk about so much more as I try to just dissect all the learnings I can from our conversation. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Ben Yoskovich. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, I have Ben Yoskovich. Hey Ben, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Ben here is the Chief Product Officer and Founding Partner of Highline Beta. And so, Ben, for our audience members who might not be familiar with your company, could you kind of give us a brief uh, description of what Highline Beta does? Sure. So Highline Beta is, um, you know, I, I don't have the, the smoothest uh, description of it, but we're, we're, we're positioned as a venture studio and a venture fund. And, and so really the key point for what we do is we work with big companies, help them identify areas of opportunity uh, and growth outside of their core business. Uh, to either build new small businesses that might eventually become large businesses or work with uh, startups uh, from a partnership or investment perspective. So that's one side of 
what Highline Beta does, working with big companies. So you can think of that as a service business or a consulting business. And then uh, the fund side of the business is uh, we have a $20 million fund to invest at the seed stage level in startups that are working closely with uh, our corporate partners. And so we're combining this corporate innovation service model and this venture fund model uh, to invest in, in startups, help startups grow, uh, and help corporates solve problems outside of their core business. Oh, okay. And so it, when I read your site, it said, you know, it's Highline Beta and one more could be like a co-creation company. And so is that where the co-creation comes in, where you help the large corporations build a venture, but at the same time you're investing, you can invest in them as well? Yeah, co-creation is is a bit of a catch-all term, I suppose, in a way. Uh, we're co-creating ventures with corporate partners, uh, and they may own those ventures 100%. They may run them in, in on the inside, and those aren't investable opportunities. Uh, and then another way of thinking of co-creation is partnering. Uh, and then And then another way of thinking of co-creation is you sort of identify these areas of opportunity, you identify problems that are worth solving in the market. And we, uh, Highline Beta, in partnership with our, our clients, might actually build a new startup. And so, you know, everything we're doing is in collaboration with big companies, with startups. If we're co-creating something from scratch, that means we're recruiting a founder and bringing that person in and providing them with resources to build something net new. So it all sort of fits into this bucket of what we call co-creation. Gotcha. And it's if from my understanding, this I this side of where you're actually working with these large corporations to build these venture biz these ventures, it seems like that might be actually a very big differentiating factor of Highland Beta. Is that what you consider to be your differentiator? I think our, our differentiator is trying to combine things that historically haven't been combined. So there are there are, you know, plenty of innovation consulting firms. Uh, if you want to think about that as a as a market, and there are lots of, or or, or you know there are quite a few venture funds. Uh, some are later stage, of course, and everybody has a slightly different flavor for how they do things. We're trying to combine that that uh, innovation work that you'll do with with large companies and the venture fund to build new businesses uh, or help uh, startups accelerate. So that's really the differentiation. Is if you sort of picture a Venn diagram of you know corporates, startups funding we sort of put ourselves in the middle of that uh to, to try to build net new value for everybody oh, okay gotcha and as we kind of now slowly move into the area of digging into your long career as an entrepreneur and as, as well in like the startup ecosystem it i'd want to like kind of take it back to like maybe when you're even like growing up was entrepreneurship always like a dream thing for you? Like you always wanted to run your own business and or like help other entrepreneurs? Was that always something that you always wanted to do even as a kid? Like did you run your own like lemonade no. stand like as a cliche term? No, not, not at all. Uh, I I, um, I didn't get into entrepreneurship until much later. Mm. Oh, relatively relatively speaking. So as a kid, I, I really wanted to be a, a doctor. Uh, more specifically, I wanted to be the sports doctor for the Montreal Canadiens. So from about grade five so whatever whatever however old you are 10 years old maybe or so um that was my that was my focus and that's what i went into university thinking i was going to do was to become a doctor and then i fell into entrepreneurship after that oh wow and yeah so it's i looked at your background so you studied psychology when you were in mcgill and so i'm also guessing you are a montreal native then if you're such a big fan of the canadians as well I, I am a I am a Montreal native, uh, and I did study psychology at McGill, and that's uh, largely in part 
due to the fact that I went into, I did a Bachelor of Science, I went in to do science, and then realized I'm going to be in school forever. And, <laughs> and, and it sucks. And um, wasn't, you know, just didn't, didn't suit me as well as I thought it would. And so I, I shifted into psychology. Um, at McGill, you can do a Bachelor of Science or a Bachelor of Arts in psychology, which means half of your classes are science, half your classes are arts. And I looked at that and said, well, look, I'll, I'll stay on this Bachelor of Science uh, trajectory, but maybe a slightly easier degree than, you know, a chemistry degree or a bio degree or anything that sort of is more typical of pre-med. Mm-hmm. And when I look at, I'd say, maybe even like the first 10, 15 years of your career, it seems like there's kind of a industry concentration where it seems like you're playing a lot in the web space and like the media space where you started your first venture called Meet Media. I think it was in like your third year of university. And then you went to work at Standpipe Studios, which it seems like there's a lot of product development. And then you're also working in Grasshopper News Media where you did content network, like marketing stuff. What what was it about this whole space that like got you excited in the first place to even like start a company in your third year? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, at the end of, I mean, it's it's literally the internet actually. So you mm. have to, like, that's, that's how old I am. So um, <laughs> I, I started my first company in 1996. It was uh, between my second and third year of, of university. And uh, this is, you know, so, so this is, I mean, the, the web, the internet exists, but, but the web um, you know, is really just materializing. Uh, I'm talking, you know, Netscape as a browser and then Internet Explorer. So very, very early days. I, uh, you know, met a few guys, three guys, actually. They were, you know, one was a designer, two were developers. They were interested in starting a web business, basically a service business that would build websites or web applications. Very, very early days. And I thought, well, this sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, technology. I mean, I'd always been into technology and, and computers. And so I just sort of got into it with these guys and said, well, let's, you know, let's start a company and let's see what we can do. And so that's how I got into entrepreneurship. It's pretty random. Uh, but then, you know, fell in love with um, uh, tech and the web uh, and entrepreneurship. And then, you know, as, as the career goes more in specifically into product. And so I fell into it by accident. Um, but again, you know, those days were so early, uh, you know, it, it's pre pretty much everything people know today. Mm-hmm. Like think of, think of almost any service that exists today. You know, I started my first company almost before most of those, those things were around. And so it was really pretty unknown times. It just seemed like a, a cool thing to do and, and, you know, learned everything on the job. Hmm. And was there like, was that the actual kind of plan that you had for yourself? Like, was it to just kind of go into these unknown ventures? Like, it just seems even like, as you tell me, it seems even more daunting. Like there's nothing out there. This is extremely new. There's, you know, when you're actually in university, a lot of, a lot of times, a lot of people try to find the path, like some kind of career path that other people have done. And you go, okay, I see a trajectory. I'll go down that. But with the advent of the internet, it just seems just, there's nothing there. It's just literally the blue ocean. So how did you handle all that? Well, I mean, so to me, well, I mean, look, in, in my first year in business, I made $12,000. So uh, we each, we, so there were four of us. One guy couldn't last. He, he was like, this is too ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not doing this. Uh, so there were three of us and we each made $12,000. So I don't know how, I don't know that I handled it terribly well at all, except for the fact that it was interesting and fun. 
and and you know and again i was going to school and and running this business mm-hmm. and work was just more in this particular case for me anyway work was just more interesting and so you know i started you know i, I mean i did graduate from mcgill um but but i was more focused on work than i was at school and so and and you know we managed to you know i i can't remember our first client necessarily but we managed to get small um web projects and again, you have to remember at the time, it was like we were just putting up brochureware for them. You know, now you have Wix and you have Instapage. You have all these tools to just launch websites. Like literally anybody can do it. Back then, that wasn't true. So everything was built from scratch. And then what we, what we figured out pretty quickly, uh, which is, you know, in hindsight, not um, terribly shocking, was that we, could, we were pretty lousy at the business side of things, you know, sales and marketing but we were pretty good from um, like a, an output perspective, as in we could build stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our, the devs were good. The design was good. I was getting you know, better at, at you know, thinking about how to run these things and do the product and project management. And at the time, the, the um, exchange rate between the Canadian and the U.S. dollar was much worse than it is now, if you think about you know, worse as in uh, you know, each Canadian dollar was worth a lot less than it is today. And so we just, we essentially turned ourselves into uh, an outsourced dev shop in a way. Mm. Uh, and that's actually how we got connected to Standpipe Studio. So these guys were in New York and Detroit. They were working with bigger clients, building websites uh, and, and web applications, but they were, do, they were outsourcing a lot of the actual uh, delivery, right? The execution. And so we said, well, look, here we are. We're, we're in Canada. We'll charge whatever it was, you know, hundred bucks an hour, but that was really $50 US an hour. So basically nothing. Um, and give us the work. And so they started giving us more and more work. So we didn't have to do so much of the sales and marketing. Uh, and then, and then essentially they aqua hired us is the way I would describe it. Now they said, guys, why don't you just work for us full time? We'll pay you good salaries. Uh, again, relative to our age and our experience. Uh, and then we we sort of became Standpipe Studios. Oh, okay, wow. That's and so you've been, and then it seems like you've been at Standpipe Studios for about eight years until you decided to go out and start an, your own other company called yeah. Standout Jobs. What spurred that when you decided to just leave and start like yeah, a so, communication platform? Well, so so Standpipe Studios, you know, we were doing service work and that was pretty good. And then, uh, but then you got to remember there was like a dot com crash, right? So two thousand and one. 2000 sort of you know the the we have an economic crisis on our hands people are like you know dot-com stuff's not going to work lots of stuff had ipo'd uh and so a lot of web service work had dried up uh people weren't spending you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars to build these fancy websites because people started to believe the internet wasn't going to work right before that we um as a company we decided to get into the uh, product business and we decided to build project management software. So again, you have to think um, this is before um, you know most. This is before most project management software existed. It's you know barely people were barely putting software uh, online. You know software now software as a service is a very common concept. Back then it wasn't. Uh, and we said, well, look, we're managing all these projects for clients. So why don't we build a product to do that, and we'll sell the product. Uh, and it was lucky that we did that because when the web service work dried up, people were still buying software. And so we built this company called Vertibase or this product called Vertibase, which essentially became the company. And we ran that for quite a while. And, and so 
Um, and that was the shift from service work to product. And then, you know, and then I left to start standout jobs, which was in the recruiting space. So a very different industry. And, and the reason I left was because Vertibase, you know, grew to a nice size, but it was, it, it sort of got old. And, you know, I had been between Meet Media and, and Standpipe Studios and, and Vertibase, it was 10 years kind of working with the same group of people, not the same, you know, not working on the same stuff, but I, I sort of felt like it was time to go do something else. A lot had happened in my life. I'd gotten married. I'd had my first uh, son. And I realized like uh, Vertibase was never going to really grow. It was going to be a nice business, a small business, but it was never going to grow beyond that. And I wanted to take a, another shot, a bigger shot. And that's why I decided to start, um, start standout jobs. Oh, wow. And for that, you, you ran standout jobs for the next, I think, three years until it got acquired. And then you started year one labs, which it is like the early stage uh, accelerator that focuses, I think on the lean startup model, if I'm correct. Yes. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, Standout Jobs uh, was, I guess, the second time I'd sort of started a company, but now, you know, quite a bit older, a little bit more sophisticated. You know, we raised about $1.8 million from investors. And uh, I guess my timing was pretty lousy because, you know, then in 2008, we had a, another recession. So mortgage crisis in the US. Uh, and, you know, a lot of companies are... Many, many companies, in fact, do stop hiring when when there is a recession, although men, <laughs> truth be told, a lot of them are sort of firing with the left hand and hiring with the right hand. Uh, but it was a difficult, difficult time to build a business and, and try to monetize that business without lots more capital. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we sort of spent three-ish years trying to build that company, eventually sold the assets of that company. Uh, so there was an exit, but not a not a successful one. You know, it was really not. It was cents on the dollar, mm. but it was an interesting experience to go through. And then I was I was burnt out at that point from running a company, which you know, as CEO, and it's 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 really hard. And so then I you know, but I was in the ecosystem in Montreal. Uh, you know, in the startup ecosystem, there were some new funds that were just investing into early stage startups at the time, and so there was a bit of this. A lot of excitement 2007 2008, 2008 even though there was a, a recession and so then year one labs comes along and, and myself and three other uh people decide we want to start an accelerator and so that was year one labs and so it was sort of it was an opportunity to stay in the startup ecosystem look at it from a slightly different perspective from the hey i'm not going to run these companies but i'm going to invest in them i'm going to mentor them i'm going to support them uh, and it was right around the time uh, to your point, where Lean Startup was coming out. And so Lean Startup comes out. It's a book written by Eric Reese, which I, I would encourage everybody to read. And what happened for me when I read that book, uh, and there was another book called Four Steps to the Epiphany by Steve, uh, Steve Blank, who coined this concept of customer development, which is a precursor to Lean Startup. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I read, I read these books, and it, it's, it, to some degree, it's as if these books were written for me. Because I, I was reading them, I was like, "Oh shit! I made this mistake. I made this mistake. Oh my god! I made, I can't believe I can't believe how stupid I was." And so I wanted to take those principles and help other founders not make the mistakes I had made. And and so we we designed Year One Labs to be a, a year long accelerator program, very different from other accelerator programs. One of the first accelerator programs in Canada, 
uh, I, I'm not going to say the first, but one of the first, certainly uh, the first, I would say that was, you know, taking a different approach than a sort of three month program. You know, we gave things a year to bake. We had these sort of steps that people had to go through from validating the problem to building a small minimum viable product. Uh, and we, it was very little capital. Uh, and that was a really fun and cool experience. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we made five investments. They were all, they all happened to be consumer businesses. Uh, three of them went on to raise additional capital. Uh, one of them was acquired by Airbnb, which was pretty, which was pretty cool. I have to say it was, was pretty fun to watch. <laughs> uh, and one, one of the businesses actually, so, so two sort of died out pretty fast. Three kept going. Um, one of them eventually failed. One was acquired by Airbnb and one of them is actually still going uh, as a business. So that was, that was pretty, that was pretty fun. Uh, to run that accelerator program yeah and it also seems like you've it's been an evolution where it's kind of like a stepladder where you started a service-based business first and then it worked with a large corporation and then it got bigger through them and then you started a product-based business and then you moved on to now launch something like a marketplace in fact where you're now also helping other entrepreneurs like what's was that a calculated progression like how did that Kind of thought process evolved. You you gently touched on touched upon moving from service to product, but then from product to starting an incubator. It just like how did that? Uh, yeah, there's there's really happen? there was you know what there was no there was no strategic plan. I mean, I think that's it's I've got to be very clear on that. Yeah. There was no <laughs> there was there was no master plan. Honestly, if I go back to the early days, the first company, or at roughly ten years, I kind of blinked. A whole bunch of stuff was happening in my life. I kind of blinked, and it was ten years later. And I'm like, wait a second, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't accomplished what I want to accomplish. And then, you know, I started standout jobs. I didn't know anything about the recruitment space, and that was a huge mistake. But you know, it was an interesting ride. And then I got into, you know, we raised money, and I started to learn about raising capital and and and, and venture capital and angel investors, and I learned all about that. And you know, and then when that was done. Um, you know, because of the network that I had built up, and I, that's probably the thread throughout is just building a good network of people. Um, this, the, the, my partner at Year One Labs, uh, or one of them, Raymond Luck, he was already thinking about this, doing this thing. And I'm like, hey, you know, well, I'm, I'm, I'm out of standout jobs. I like helping entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, why don't we do this together? And so it, it, these things just sort of fall into place as you build these networks. But there was absolutely no master plan. Really, from standout jobs, I just didn't want to be. A, I didn't want to start another company mm -hmm. uh, because I had spent three years essentially banging my head against the wall, trying to you know make something happen, and I didn't want to be a CEO. And so, with Year One Labs, uh, you know, uh, Ray was really the guy leading it. I was, you know, I was there. We were partners with, with a couple of other guys as well. Actually, you know, one of our partners, Alistair Kroll, I ended up writing Lean Analytics with. But it was you. You weren't the CEO of a thing, right? You're sort of you're this accelerator program designed to help other people be the CEOs of stuff. And so it felt like a lot less responsibility, uh, a lot less burden. Uh, and, and it was fun to do, you know, if there's one thing in my career that I think has been fairly consistent is going from doing a lot of things. So think of a service business, you're servicing a lot of clients to building one product uh, to the, you know, so if you think about service business, then a product, then standout jobs is one thing. Year One Labs was five things. Mm -hmm. And then after that was one thing. So I think it's going from 
focusing on one thing to focusing on a lot of things to focusing on one thing sort of back and forth. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like, you know, year one labs in one aspect is kind of the predecessor to what you have with Highline Beta. And I'm wondering what, what kind of le- learnings did you pull out from those periods where you started your first kind of incubator slash accelerator um, into your current one? Yeah, I think, I think everything I've done is a precursor to Highline Beta. And I think mm-hmm. as, as much as the, the path is not linear by any stretch of the imagination, uh, and it's sometimes hard to connect those dots, it is, it is a Highline Beta is a combination of everything I've learned in the past. So, so as an example, with Year One Labs, you know, the, the way we were running that accelerator program, it's very difficult to make money. And so, and I've written blog posts about this in the past where accelerators, it's a difficult business to make money. We would have had to, to, to have scaled year one labs, we would have had to have raised a lot more money and invested in a lot more companies Mm. because that's ultimately what the business model would have looked like, which is, you know, you can't do five companies a year you know, roughly 50K per company, who, who pays the bills, right? How do you pay salaries and, and everything else? So we, we weren't really paying ourselves. Uh, and so, you know, which is economically not the smartest thing to do, you, you know, you, you have bills. And so um, Highline Beta, you know, changes that because we do have a service component to this business, working with big companies, uh, and, and that is a revenue model. So you know, accelerators genuinely can accelerate startups. They can genuinely help startups grow. Uh, but you got to think about, well, how is this sustainable and scalable? And then I'd say the other thing is when we work with these companies, although they were consumer companies, um, what you start to, you know, what we started to realize working with those startups and then mentoring a host of others was, you know, oftentimes they, they started to figure things out when they got that first big customer or they got that first big partner. Well, guess what? Those were always big companies. And so, you know, we looked at that and looked at our history and said, how do you bring the big companies to the table a little faster, uh, bring them to the party a little faster? How do you make sure they can work effectively with startups because they don't speak the same language? So these are all the kinds of lessons I learned with, with Year One Labs to try to build a different model for helping startups grow. And in fact, Highline Beta does run accelerator programs today mm-hmm. they're structured a little bit differently we call them commercial deal accelerators because they're focused on executing pilots between startups and big companies but a lot of those lessons come from having run an accelerator and seen the good the bad and the ugly of it uh years years and years ago yeah and it also seems like that i can see a little bit of even after one year one labs where when you joined uh, go instant as a vp of product and when go instant got acquired by salesforce you ended up going from you know a startup to joining a larger corporation again kind of like what happened with meet media from your first foray and then after that you yeah. went back to become a vp of product at another startup garage sale and then it later got acquired again yeah so i mean i, I yeah i think go instant so again i mean i, I was doing year one labs we had decided not to, to do year two labs. Uh, and that's why we called it, you know, we did that on purpose. We, it was a test, right? It was, mm. let's, let's do this and run this as a test and see what we can learn. And so, you know, when we decided not to do year one labs again, um, you know, the couple of things happened. One was I, I decided to, it was time to leave Montreal. Uh, and so, you know, an opportunity came up uh, to, to join Go Instant. And I thought, okay, um, interesting company, some really, really cool tech, 
really strong team, some great investors. They're in Halifax, never been to Halifax before, but what the hell, pick up the family, two kids now, let's move to Halifax and we'll take a shot at this thing. And, and, and then I slipped into this role of VP product because again, honestly, I, I was still not psychologically ready to be the CEO of a company. And so after year one labs, I toyed with, oh, maybe I should start something on my own. You know, I have, I have the network, I have investors that are interested. I, I've learned a lot from running this accelerator program. But I, I came into this role and said, you know what? I don't want to be in charge in charge. So VP product, running product was a good fit for me. And so I joined GoInstant. Uh, very quickly, the company was acquired by Salesforce. And then I spent two years uh, at sales, working for Salesforce in Halifax, growing the team and integrating GoInstant's technology uh, into Salesforce. And that was, again, a whole other experience. Uh, and, and, you know, just, just as a quick aside, I think, you know, my first chunk of my career was sort of 10 years. Again, Meet Media, Standpipe, Vertibase, it's, you know, multiple things, but basically the same entity in a way. Mm. And then after that, it's, you know, three years, two years, or I mean, three years standout jobs, one year, year one labs. Like, and so sometimes when you look at careers and you see people jumping, you know, they, you know, job hopping or whatever they call it. Some people might look at that and say, oh, that's bad. Maybe this person can't keep a job or, you know, they get bored too easily. And, and I don't know that that, I mean, maybe sometimes that's the case. For me, it was, you know, something ended and something new had to begin. And I didn't want it to be the same thing, but I wanted to go try something new, uh, take a little bit of risk, but not so much risk that I could lose my shirt. Uh, and, and so my career was jumping quite a bit. Uh, until I get to Highlight Beta, where I think I'll be here, you know, I'll be running this for many, many years. Uh, but I think, you know, job hopping, if you will, is not not the worst thing in the world. I don't necessarily consider that a negative signal. Yeah, no, I 100% I agree with you. I think it's, I try to tell even my peers how maybe, you know, why, why do people have this arbitrary two-year rule where like, at least in the professional services, like you have to do two years and you get to go somewhere then a lot of my friends will say, oh, I'll stay for another year because I got to hit the two-year mark. And it's very arbitrary, but instead, there could actually be something else like a focus on what are you learning? Have you maximized what you think you could learn? Are you hating diminishing returns? And do you want a new adventure? And it seems like there's not so much emphasis on that, but more so on like the sometimes a public perception of that, the negative uh, stigma people give for yep. quote-unquote job hopping. Yeah, and, and I left I left uh, Salesforce, you know, fairly early. I had been there for two years and, uh, you know, and then made a decision to join, move to Toronto. So, again, move the family uh, and join Virage Sale. And, and, you know, the way that happened was uh, I was one of, if not the first investors in Virage Sale. So, you know, after Go Instant, I started Angel Investing. Uh, you know, using some of the experience from year one labs, again, using some of the network that I had uh, built up over, uh, you know, some time in the tech space, invested in Virage Sale. Uh, the founders uh, were friends of mine, uh, invested in Virage Sale, and then, uh, you know, was convinced to move to Toronto and join the product team there. So I left Salesforce quite early. But again, it was, you know, new adventure, new things to learn, new things to try to accomplish, you know, could we build Virage Sale to be, uh, you know, bigger than Go Instant had been. Go Instant was successful, but, you know, in my mind, it's like, well, what's next? What's the next sort of thing that we can accomplish 
uh, and, and experience. And so went to join Barrage Sale, uh, had a good experience there. I wasn't there when the company was acquired, but, uh, you know, after Virage Sale, and again, I ran, I was, uh, you know, running product there. And then when my time at Virage Sale was done, then I finally decided I was ready to start another company. Mm-hmm. And so it had been whatever number of years that is. I mean, you know, um, 10-ish years maybe since, yeah, you know, nine, 10 years since I had started a company, if you exclude year one labs. And then finally decided it was time to, you know, start my own thing again. And so, and then started Highline Beta. And I think prior to Highline Beta, you've had somewhere around like 17 angel investments during that angel investing period. And how, like, how, do, how does one get started in angel investing? Is it, would you say it's from just building that network where these opportunities like end up coming inbound to you? Or did you actively start thinking, hmm, do I want to try building this investing skill set again? Uh, it, it's a combination of both. I think the initial investments that I made were in, in friends, people I knew that happened to be starting companies. Uh, you know, most people knew about the exit of GoInstant to Salesforce. Uh, and so, and I knew people who were starting companies and said, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to angel invest, uh, and start doing that. Uh, and then, and then to some degree, you know, and then you sort of build up the network, you build up, uh, you know, not necessarily reputation, but sort of, Hey, I am looking to make angel investments and then deal flow starts to come to you. I think, you know, one of the things to think about if you're thinking about angel investing is, you know, the check sizes, uh, don't have to be very big. It's all—it's always relative, of course, for everybody. So I don't want to say, oh, it doesn't have to be big. And people are like, hey, you know what? $100 is big. So I, I get that. But, you know, check sizes, some people think, oh, I need millions of dollars. And and that's not, that's not true at all. You can angel invest with relatively small amounts of money. You do have to be prepared to lose it all. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, you, you can't go into that and say, well, um, you know, you just write, somebody once told me, write the check, assume you've lost it even though that's the moment where you think you're about, you've just made the smartest decision in the world. So you, you, you do have to have, it is high, high risk uh, investing, but you don't need as much as you might think you need to, to start. There are lots of good resources out there for learning how to angel invest. There's lots of people who are, or, or, you know, there are people doing it. So if you're in the tech ecosystem, you can find those people. Um, Highline beta actually you know, works very hard around uh, uh, diversity in investing. So we acquired something called Female Funders a number of years ago, which is focused on um, getting more women in as angel investors. Uh, and it's an, it, it does a few things, but, you know, there's a big educational component to that. Frankly, anybody could get that educational content. You don't have to be a woman, but um, there's lots of ways of getting into the space and learning. Find a mentor who's done it. You know, work with a couple of other people to generate deal flow. Don't do it solo. Uh, but and it's fun. You know, it's a lot of fun because you're you feel like you're uh, contributing. You feel like you're giving back to some extent. You of course hope there's a return. Uh, I enjoy watching other people succeed, and I enjoy helping in any way that I can. And so you know, you write a relatively small check, uh, and you know, hopefully that they can come to you for advice and you can be helpful. And then you see them win and you're like, you know what, I, I contributed a little bit to that win and that feels good. Mm-hmm. And how, like, what's the smallest check that you have written? Um, just to give kind of a spectrum, like how low it can possibly get. Yeah, the smallest check I've written is 10K. Mm. Uh, I, I know that investors, there are quite a few that write 5K checks. I would say that's probably 
I don't, I don't know that that's actually the lowest, but let's say 5k. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and particularly if you have, um, some type of domain expertise or skill set that founders would really benefit from. And so that, you know, it's not just the dollars that you're contributing into this company, although those dollars, every dollar counts and every dollar is super important. Uh, but you might genuinely be able to open doors. Uh, you know, let's say you're an expert in B2B sales and you can help, you know, you can help provide advice. You could help with recruiting. Uh, so founders have to spend a lot of time recruiting their team and you might have a good network of developers, for example. And so you have to think about that value add that you can truly, truly bring to the table uh, because it's not just about the dollars alone. Mm -hmm. And we should also touch on the other part of your career where you've been, you know, you've published a book back in 2013, you wrote Lean Analytics and it, it was with O'Reilly Media. And so that was very interesting for me just because I've been a huge fan of Tim O'Reilly and what they do over at the Alpha Tech Ventures team. And I'm just curious, like, how did, how did that get started? How, like, from what I know, um, just being a lover of books and stuff, it's just, it's a daunting task, I feel, to start to decide to like, write a book. It's like torturing yourself. But I'm just curious, what was the process? <laughs> like, why did you decide to, you know, start, go off on that venture of publishing a book back in 2013? Yeah, so, so it was, Year One Labs was over. We had learned a lot. So our, our goal with Year One Labs was to take lean startup methodology and apply it. Because at the time when Eric wrote, Eric Reese wrote Lean Startup, uh, he was really, you know, he was using examples from his own experience, but it was, I would suggest that it was fairly theoretical in nature. People could read the book and say, this makes sense. I'm not quite sure how to apply it. Mm. So, you know, we, we, we do year one labs. We, we try to apply this methodology. We learn a ton from doing that. And a big area where we realized that there was sort of a gap in, in the details of, of Lean Startup was around the data. What metrics should I track? At what stage? How do I know what a good metric is? So on and so forth. So Alistair and I you know, went, you know, went out to write a book around Lean Startup and Lean methodologies uh, and make it as practical as we could. Uh, now, the advantage that, that I had was writing it with Alistair. So Alistair Kroll had previously written uh, books with O'Reilly. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one of them was around web analytics. And so, you know, he's an analytics uh, expert. He had written a book with O'Reilly. He's done a whole bunch of, of, of work with O'Reilly around their, uh, their strata conferences and a host of other things. So when Alistair and I sort of got together and said, you know, there's so much to this lean startup. There's so much to this way of, of validating problems and building products and building businesses. We should write a book around it. You know, we had an in with O'Reilly uh, in order to do that. Writing it did take a year. Uh, I did, I think, I'm not sure I would ever write a book by myself. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, so I think um, writing it with Alistair was great. You know, we fed off each other. Um, we had worked together at Year One Labs. We're very different people, uh, and and it, but it worked well. And so it took us about a year to write, um, and and it was you know I mean writing it was painful, uh, but it's been it was fun. You know it was in hindsight it was fun, uh, and and I think the book has um, at least people have told us that it's been valuable, and that that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And when I look at your, or if someone who didn't know about your story. I actually just looked at your background. They go, oh, 
look, he's the founding partner of Highline Beta. And then they look look at your, I guess, you know, CV in a sense, we'll go on your LinkedIn, they'll, they'll see all the things you've done. And I think it, it wouldn't be far-fetched for them to go, oh, of, of course he started Highline Beta. Like, look at him. He, he did year one labs and he was at all these, you know, he's a VP of product at all these startups. And it it's possible that for people to be like, oh, that's obviously a very, like they'll look at it and go, oh, that looks so linear in one way. Oh, there's a very non-linear career. And so I'm curious, like, for you, like, what what were some of, like, these non-obvious, like, unseen challenges during, like, each of these transitions that you feel, like, you know, when people might not be aware of or even your peers close to you might think were obvious, but just were not obvious at the time? Just because, like, for example, to give you perspective, like, when, like, I left accounting, went into management consulting, and then to become an investor, and when I talk to some individuals, like, I talked to like, a product manager, he says, oh, that seems very obvious, like, of course, you went from accounting, consulting to investing. It seems like a normal transition, but it really isn't the case when you're actually in it. So I'd be curious right. for you, like what what are some of like those non-obvious challenges that you just went through in these transitions? Well, I think I think every step of the way was hard. <laughs> so, uh, but also very interesting. So, uh, you know, when I when I when we started Year One Labs, we really had no, you know. It, I mean, every time I've started something, most of most of what I was doing, I didn't know what I was doing. So it, mostly I was living with unknowns. So we start year one labs. Um, everybody, you know, the four partners had all started companies before. We had worked at startups. So we, we understood some things, but we didn't know where were we going to find the people to join year one labs. Uh, what ideas would people come with? Uh, could we actually put them through this one year process and spit them out the other side and have them be valuable. And how would we even measure success? So just so many unknowns with year one labs. And then, you know, going to Halifax uh, in and of itself, making that move, I think was, you know, was a, a lot of people were surprised, uh, you know, why are you moving to Halifax? But then I joined Go Instant, a very, very heavy tech company. You know, it's, it's easy to look at, at, you know, tech businesses and say, oh, it's a tech business. They're not, they're not all created equal. They're all very different. Go Instant was very, like what I would describe as hard tech, solving an actual, very complicated technical problem. And quite early stage, there were no customers uh, really yet. Uh, there was demoable technology. There was no real go to market plan of any significance. So we were going to go B2B. And, and so a whole bunch of unknowns there. And so, you're, you know, it's a little bit of a flyer, but you're, I've never thought of any of these moves as super risky because I never, you know, I always, like I always say, like, don't take a second mortgage out on your home. You know, don't like if you've got a family or you've got whatever you've got, like make sure you can feed them and then everything else is you'll figure it out. So, you know, most of the jumps, it was unknowns. Uh, even starting Highline Beta, you know, you go in with a thesis. Okay, we think we can work with corpse. We think we can sell them these services or products, if you will. We think we can accelerate the relationships between startups and corps. We've kind of done these things before, but we've never scaled it, we've never systematized it. So I think every step along the way, there have been significant unknowns. Uh, and you know, and then even going from Go Instant to Virage Sale, Go Instant was hard tech B2B, Virage Sale was B2C, it was a marketplace play. Uh, and I had probably invested in marketplaces by that point, but I never built one. And so you take some of the fundamentals, 
of what it means to build good product or hire good people or, or how to help good, you know, good teams be high performing. But, you know, I was no marketplace expert when I, when I, when I joined Virage Sales. So I think every time it's about the unknowns and, and how quickly you can learn and figure these things out so that you can, you know, be productive and valuable in whatever new thing you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seemed, it, it seems like, yeah, like it's, you, when you go through it, there's all these like uncertainties that face you. And like you said, you're constantly seeing all these new challenges that you you haven't seen before. And so do you, I'm, I can imagine that you've probably had some kind of battle with, you know, the imposter, the imposter syndrome that I think a lot of entrepreneurs and even just people who go on unconventional journeys experience. Can you kind of talk through what your experience has been like with that? Yeah, I, I think I think I absolutely felt that way before. Uh, I think I, I, I still do from the, you know, so I think to be a founder means you, you just have to believe in yourself uh, uh, more than most people believe in themselves, maybe, mm. uh, to, to, to do it. Uh, you, you shouldn't take horrible risks. So again, like I want to, I want to balance that, you know, I, I, you know, I had I've been married for many years. I have two, two kids um, I, I could always pay the bills, uh, with my wife, you know, uh, she, she works also, but we, you know, as a family, we always, we were doing what looked like crazy things, but you know, it was never that crazy. And I always believed no matter what I could find work somewhere else and do something else and, and, and cover myself. Um, so I think, I think that's really in, in, important to, to recognize. Um, so, so for me, I think it's, it's a process of learning along the way, taking some risks as an entrepreneur, uh, but recognizing, you know, that you don't know everything. And, you know, I, I believe in myself, but, but it's not, it's not ego in the way of, I I believe in myself so much so that I'm just going to solve everything magically. I know most of it is learning and really hard work and trying a bunch of things and, and failing a bunch. I've failed many, many times. Uh, and, and so you sort of have to accept that in the process. Uh, and, and, and the, I think a lot of people face this notion of imposter syndrome, uh, and it's very, very real because even if you've won before and you've been very successful, uh, it doesn't guarantee success after, and there is no formula either. So you can't crack some secret code and just follow, you know, 10 steps and you win. And so, you know, there's a certain amount of belief in yourself with a balance of humility that you've got have to learn a lot and, and take your bruises, uh, and and just keep fighting every day, and then try to, you know, again, having written lean analytics, I sort of always go back to, you know, not not a formula but systems. Okay, I wake up. What is the system I can use to get through the things I need to solve today? How do I just move, you know, the proverbial ball a couple of steps forward, uh, and then surround yourself with people that are smarter than you, uh, who have gone through a, a whole variety of life experiences as well, because nobody does this. Nobody wins on their own in, in, in this space, if you will. This is not a, this is a team sport for sure. Uh, and so how do you surround yourself with the right people that can sort of support you? That's why I think, you know, co-founding a business, founding a business solo is so scary. I know people have done it. I've invested in people who have done it. But to, for me, I think I, I would have a hard time with that. I think you, you have a co-founder or two because when you're down and you're feeling like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, that person pulls you up. 
and then and then vice versa mm. and as long as everybody's not feeling super down at the same time <laughs> you've you've got your you've got your support system there you know and I, and I think that those things are really important to powering through that imposter syndrome or that you know that fake it till you make it kind of um, feeling that a lot of people will have mm-hmm. and on, on your journey like I, I think this might maybe be relevant in especially the early parts where you you know you can do all these matter these kind of various product roles and the, you can do the work but have you experienced times when the market isn't responding to the way you expected where they might you know that's like an example is like nowadays for product managers like some roles require you to have an engineering degree whereas if you don't have one they might just not respect you even though you might have the experience and you know you can do it and so i'm just curious for you did you experience that while you were building out your career even in like the first like decade or so um, on, on a skill, no, not, to, so I guess, I guess the one thing is that I've, I've never, um, I've never applied for a job before. And I know that, I know that maybe sounds a little bit strange, but I've never, I've never really run into a circumstance where somebody has, um, you know, question the skills I have or don't have or the way I work or the way I don't work because I've never really applied for a job in, in the traditional sense, I guess. Um, I've certainly uh, done jobs. I've had jobs where while I'm in them, people are questioning whether I can do them or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that has absolutely happened. But never, never, never the application process, and and so, uh, so I haven't had that experience. But I've certainly had the experience of I don't know what I'm doing, and I know that other people know that I don't know what I'm doing, and and that is a very uncomfortable place to be. Mm-hmm. And branching off of that, you also mentioned that you know you've had as much as you've had success, it comes with many more failures. And so, is there a, a particular failure that you? continues to kind of think back on as like that was a huge learning moment and it's something you really carry on to like even now yeah i would say standout jobs for me even though the assets of that company were acquired uh for cents on the dollar a lot of people lost money uh and a lot of people lost years of their life because i spent three years doing it i mean i learned a ton doing it but i think that that failure to me is still uh one of the one of, if not the the biggest, um, I was the CEO. So everything, you know, at the end of the day, if you're the CEO, everything falls to you, right? There's no excuse. It's all it's all your fault. Uh, and and you know, I learned so much there. A very simple example of that is myself and my co-founder had never been in the recruitment space. So you have to go back to 2007. This is right when social media is starting to become a thing. It's right when blogging is starting to become a thing. WordPress is starting to become a thing. And you see all of this content activity and social media marketing starting to emerge. And then we looked at, the, and, and we were a part of that, right? Because we had been in the tech space already. And then we saw, you know, recruiting. And we said, you know, if you ask anybody who's hiring people, have you ever had a hard time recruiting top talent? The only answer they'll ever give you is yes. It doesn't matter if it's the crappiest company in the world, the coolest company in the world, a big company, small company, everybody has a hard time recruiting. And so we said, it's a gigantic market. Everybody has a hard time recruiting. Um, People hate job boards and people hate recruiters. We're smart. We're going to build these social tools to help companies recruit better. 
and we absolutely got our ass handed to us. Uh, you know, we raised a bunch of money on hope and a prayer, and we didn't understand the customer. We didn't understand the market. We didn't understand how budgets worked inside of big companies. Uh, we didn't understand. We really didn't understand much of anything. And yet we were convinced that this thing we were building was the was going to be a billion dollar business. Uh, and and that was that was really painful. I wrote a blog post after the after standout jobs. Can't remember what it was called, um, but it was all of my reflections of running a business in the re recruitment space. And for years and years after, so I mean, we're we're twenty twenty, and you know, we we exited that business literally a decade ago. And for it still happens occasionally, but for years after that blog post, I had people reaching out to me who had started companies in the recruiting space who were in the exact same position as me. They said, "I saw recruiting." I know it's broken. I started a company in the space and I got crushed. And again, they, you know, and this is lean. And then remember, lean startup comes out after this, right? Which is go validate the problem quickly. Don't go build a product for nine months and then launch it and hope to God it works. Uh, so all of these things, all of these mistakes I made, I then realized, you know, don't make those mistakes again. And so many people look at these big, big markets and they know that they're fundamentally messed up, but they don't really understand the why underneath it. And so they go into these spaces and they say, well, I'm smart. I, you know, I'm technical, whatever it is, I'm going to go and I'm going to punch a hole in this market. And then the market just says, you know, screw off and, and crushes you. And, and so for years and years, people were sending me emails and wanting to talk because they, they had had that same experience, hmm. uh, particularly in the recruitment space. So for, for, as, a, as far as failures go, uh, that one, and, and, and I mean, it took me a decade, well, not quite a decade, but it took me, you know, from 2010 to 2016, six-ish years to feel ready to start another company. Mm -hmm. that, that's how much, that's how painful being the, the CEO, uh, and by the way, I'm not the CEO of Highline Beta, uh, you know, that was how painful founding a company was at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm definitely going to go and read that blog post of yours. On Is it is it on the Instigator blog, your personal blog? It is. Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll, it I'll, is. I'll look that up because, as you mentioned, it made me think about the time when I went to a venture capitalist, uh, I think it was last year or a year and a half ago, to pitch a recruitment idea, and then it got destroyed, and I was pretty happy about that. <laughs> you you probably saved yourself years of hurt. So, <laughs> and and it and it's not because you people can't build a business in that space. There have been many startups in the recruitment space that have since the days of standout jobs that have been successful. Uh, you know, I I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't crack it at the time, but I certainly learned lessons there that that stay with me now that I think are fundamental to the way I think about running companies. Uh, like just fundamentally changed the way I think about it. And so we did a, a few things right. I don't want to say the whole thing was a complete uh, shit show, but, um, but, you know, at the end, we did not achieve what we were hoping to achieve. And, you know, for me, if you're going to make these kinds of mistakes, which maybe are inevitable, you just, you really don't want to repeat them. Mm -hmm. It's okay to do it once. Just don't, don't repeat the same mistakes. Really try to learn from them. And I think that's true if you're starting a company, but I think it's true if you join a company 
you know, you have a job at, at, a, at whatever company it is, whatever you're doing, if you make mistakes, just try not to make them again. <laughs> uh, you know, because that that's that's the point where it's just it's not productive. Sometimes we, I think, you know, people will often say you learn more from the mistakes than you do from the successes. I I think that that's probably true. The successes inevitably there's there's so many elements to why you succeed and and you, you can't ignore things like luck and timing things that you don't necessarily control that that but failures it's usually because we did something wrong and so i think we learn we you have the opportunity to learn a lot more from those failures if you're really you know it might take years after you recover from them depending on how big they are <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I, I think that to me is, is, you know, stands out. I think, uh, there certainly have been others, you know, I, I, I would suggest that we didn't accomplish what we wanted to with Virage sale. Uh, it did not, it didn't scale to the extent that we hoped it would scale to. Um, you know, I, I would say that, um, you know, year one labs, I would say was success because, you know, one of those investments, uh, you know, uh, again, one of those companies was acquired by Airbnb, and, and that's proven to be you know great for us. And Airbnb obviously has grown immensely since since when that company was acquired. Uh, but we didn't figure out how to scale uh, Year One Labs either, you know. So and then so I think a lot of um, a lot of failures, some small uh, standout jobs, I would suggest was a little bit bigger of a failure, uh, but also you know lots of wins too. I think it's you know maybe it's even. Um, you know, and, and then you just you just need a few more wins than losses, or you need the wins to outside, you know, be way outsized versus you know li little losses, huge wins. That's not a bad that's not a bad career. Yeah, that's, that's actually um, I don't know how familiar you are with um, the value investing world, but there's a investor that I really like called Monish Pubrai, and he has a saying where he's like he considers invest his investing approach is tails or heads I win, tails I don't lose much. And that's the way right. he recommends that value investors think as well. And I think it's applicable to various aspects of life and business as well. Absolutely. I, again, I think, I think in some ways I've probably followed that, whether I realize it or not, but it was more so about, you know, some people might look at my career and say, oh, wow, that was super risky. But, but in, you know, in reality, you know, maybe, maybe the first company I started was pretty risky because there was a chance I, you know, maybe would have left university, not graduated, and then not had some, you know, backup plan, for example. I mean, and, and by the way, even after I graduated, um, my parents, uh, you know, still encouraged me to go get an MBA because they're like, you know, just in case this startup thing doesn't work, don't you think you need some, but you're doing this business thing. So that sounds interesting. Don't you think you need a backup plan? So I actually went and did the GMAT and applied and got in. I never went to get the MBA, but maybe that was the most risky thing I did. After that, always had a roof, always had food, um, you know, so, so was, was able to support myself uh, and, and never put myself in a position that was really, really risky. Mm -hmm. And so I, again, like, you know, the losses didn't destroy everything I had built up, whether it was reputation or network or experience. Uh, and then the wins, uh, you know, have been good. And, and, and so I, I, I'm all for risk taking, but I also, I, you know, I'm fairly convinced that starting companies is less risky than people make it out to sound. Right. No, definitely. And I think if I could 
pushed the listeners to one particular article that I enjoyed reading. I really enjoyed reading your latest one where you talk about the learnings you've had from running Highline Beta for the last three years. And when in the in that piece, you talked about how you had a lot of incredible learnings. Some of you, some of them you really wish you could share. And I'm curious, can you share a couple of them that kind of are constantly like on the back of your mind as you constantly build out Highline Beta for the future? Yeah, I mean, I've 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 learned a lot, and and uh, you know, and we're I mean, we're of course still learning. So I think, you know, we w- we went into Highline Beta uh, with a thesis around how to help corporates grow outside of their core, how to then leverage that work to invest. Uh, we are proving that thesis out, but you know, uh, you know, things things that we've learned over time. So how to sell into big companies successfully. Uh, it's not as if historically I had a background as a B2B enterprise salesperson. So we're learning how to productize service and deliver. We're learning how to, um, you know, create value for for core for for big companies that leads towards the investable opportunities that we want. Um, you know, this is the first time that I've um, been involved in raising a fund, so a venture capital fund, and. Uh, it, it is, it's, it's hard. It's really, really hard. And, uh, my, my partners, Marcus and, and Lauren are, are doing most of that work and, you know, raising a fund. I, I remember a long time ago, an investor once told me when I was raising money for standout jobs, they said, you think raising money for a startup is hard. You should try raising a fund. And at the time I was like, well, that's, that's a little bit hurtful because here I am on hand and knee kind of begging for money. Uh, you know, and it's like, your life can't be harder than my life. Trust me, my life's really hard. And, you know, now raising a fund, it's, it's, it's a cha- it's challenging. And so, you know, that's a good, you know, we've, we've learned about, about that space and how, how to do it. And, and, and so, you know, those are things we've learned, um, always learning more and more about different industries and verticals. So that's one of the things I really love about what we do, which is we get to work in a whole variety of different industries um, and, and learning a ton about, about that. And that, that there's no downside to that learning. That's all upside, right? And that's just getting to learn about what consumers care about, getting to learn about what big companies care about. So lots of fascinating stuff there as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually curious on maybe even your first experience of actually convincing a large organization to you know, buy your services because the... A lot of large companies, you know, they're relatively bureaucratic in nature and they might not be as open to trying something new out. And from like from my time as an investor, one of the perks of being an investor is that you get to learn new industries like you did you do with Highline Beta. But at the same time, when you're actually the one providing the service, there could actually be a little uh, potential backlash and saying, yeah, we're excited to learn about your space. So I'm curious on your experience selling to your like, first large organization with Highline Beta. Yeah, it's 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 a process for sure. It's not easy. Uh, I would say that you know we we have the benefit of having worked with different uh, organizations over over our careers, uh, and so I, to me, you you have if you're going to start something uh, selling to big companies, frankly anything, but if you're going to s- start selling things to big companies, you you need some good uh, relationships in place already. You need some, let's call it like you need some assets in place that you can leverage to get that first customer or that, you know, second customer, uh, that first referral. And so, 
you know, I think we, we leverage, you know, I don't think we could have started Highline Beta five years ago or 10 years ago. I think, you know, the time, timing is, it's hard to time things, but, you know, I, that first initial traction comes from reputation, relationships that have been built up over years. Lean analytics uh, doesn't hurt because, um, you know, a number of people reach out sort of proactively and say, hey, I read your book. I like it. We're using it inside our organization. Uh, and so, again, that's what I mean by having these assets in place, which, again, if you're starting from scratch, you can't do. Uh, but then that falls back to network and just building network over time because you never know when that network, you're going to be able to unlock some value from it. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you go about how, how do you go about building your relationships up? It's something I'm still learning to do as through the podcast. I've been able to meet a lot more people, but at a much faster pace than I'm used to. And sometimes it just seems like there's so many people to keep track of. How do you go about building and building relationships, maintaining them, et cetera? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, if, if I if I go back in time, you know, I'm in Montreal, bef- right around standout jobs or even just before standout jobs. Um, you know, I was running this company, Vertibase, this project management software, and I was really not super connected into the ecosystem. And when I realized I wanted to, I was thinking of doing something new, I started attending events, but I also uh, started running things. Uh, and so I, I ran this um, tech entrepreneurship breakfast. So it's, uh, in Montreal for, for a couple of years, I, I think the, the answer is you have to create some kind of value. Hmm. So the podcast is a great example of that. Um, you know, you're, you're doing a podcast, you, you get people on the podcast. So that is, is a touch point. You put that out there in the world. It's creating value. So I think you have to create something of value, whether it's an event or content, uh, whether it's, you know, presenting about something that you have expertise in. So if you can put stuff out into the world, uh, that's creating value. Uh, it's going, you know, that's usually going to be the sort of, um, that'll be the, the, the top of the funnel, if you will, for people reaching out to you. So you're not always the one sort of chasing people around. Mm. And, you know, and that, so I think, you know, you got to attend stuff. You have to participate uh, in the circles, wherever you, you know, with whatever circles you want to hang out with. Again, for me, it's mostly, you know, the tech and the entrepreneurship space. But I also think you have to come up with something that you can produce and create. Lean analytics is maybe an extreme of that. Uh, of course, uh, but you know, well before lean analytics, I was blogging. Now, you know, I had the I had the advantage of it, you know I I started blogging pretty much when blogging started becoming a thing. <laughs> so I you know that was maybe a like from a timing perspective that was lucky. Um, but there's you know podcasting grows in popularity, so I think I think that's you just got to participate in the ecosystems. Uh, you got to network. You got to be available. You you can mentor people. You can you, you. There's lots of different things you can do. But I I, I think of it often as creating. Mm-hmm. What value can you create and put out there and see who and what that catches. And for you on your journey, like it's you've been constantly creating. You know, whether as an employee, as as an entrepreneur, what what motivates you to continuously go on these unconventional journeys. Honestly, it's just fun. Uh, it's just it's just fun. That's a good um, reason. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I think you know one thing I I, ha- I have learned because every day hasn't been fun. Um, 
but but you know and then you look at hindsight and you look at it with maybe with rose colored glasses but i would say that you know there was a point in my life where i said i i never want to be doing something that i i don't enjoy um you know not to get you know it's not to be philosophical about it but life is pretty short and if you don't work towards optimizing for what you want out of it it's not it's, nobody's going to hand it to you so for me you know there was a point I think I think probably at the end of of that vertebased, you know, when I when I started standout jobs, I'm like, I, I'm never going to do anything for, you know, ten years unless I really want to be doing it. I'm always going to try something new. I'm always going to try to optimize for things I enjoy. And again, not because every day was fun. That's absolutely not the case. But I think I, I still just enjoy it. Um, I do. I, you know, things like I I enjoy writing. Uh, I certainly don't blog. Uh, much anymore, if at all. Uh, and, and, you know, writing a second book, you know, maybe someday, but that's, that's a whole other task. But I, I do like creating stuff to put ideas out, to test ideas, um, to get feedback on stuff. But ultimately, honestly, it's, it's about fun. And it's about, you know, for me, it's about the creation process. Uh, so, you know, now I'm creating uh, with my co-founders and, and the team Highline Beta. So that's the thing I'm trying to build. In other times, it's been a product or even a feature or something else. I just like building stuff. Hmm. And what what is something that you feel like you believe that goes against uh, conventional wisdom? It's one of the questions I like asking a lot of my guests, and I'm curious for you. Like, what what's something that you feel that you have a belief in that might actually be quite unconventional? Uh, I guess I guess for me, it's. I'm not convinced we should I'm not I'm not convinced we should cure everything that kills people off mm. uh as 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 dark as that may sound uh because I, I do I I I'm not sure the planet can actually sustain a population where every disease whichever one you want to use is cured so as much and and I've had family members die from diseases and, and friends. And so, uh, but I, I not, I think most people would say, yeah, of course we want to cure everything. I, I'm not sure the planet survives if we do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of um, literature that supports that point of view for sure. And yeah, I think that's, that's a pretty fun uh, belief to have as well. It's, it reminds me of like a Bill Burr. Are, are you familiar with the comedian Bill Burr? Yes. Yeah. So he yes. has he has one of those skits where he's like, you know, we can solve a lot of these problems if we just wiped off a couple million people, and that would solve a lot right. of problems we have. Obviously. And and <laughs> yeah, and I get, I, I, and of course there are people who believe that, and 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 I just I think it's easy to say. So again, if you want to think about something meaningful, so the other thing I would say is that um, I'd like to spend more time solving problems that actually matter. Mm. Uh, and not solving problems that don't matter. So then, then when you start, you know, so you know, we work with um, AB InBev, which is the largest brewer in the world, uh, uh, and we run an accelerator program with them focused on sustainability. And so all the startups they're working with are, you know, solving water problems, energy, renew, you know, renewable energy problems, recycling problems, and that that's just that's just cool. Honestly, it's like, wait a second, we could actually solve something that makes a difference. <laughs> And yeah. so, you know, it's not because I'm, I'm morbid and, you know, wish lots of people would be killed off the planet. But I, but I do think, you know, you start to think a little bit more about 
and and having kids, I think maybe has this impact on you as well, where it's like, okay, wait a second, are we leaving things better off than than we were before? And and I, not a hundred percent sure we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's awesome that uh, I did. I should have mentioned that. Yeah, about that um, project you guys have with ABM Bev, where you, it's true you have the ability to work with a company that has like thirty percent market share in the entire like alcoholic beverage industry. So the impact you can do working with that kind of company, it's huge in what, what they can achieve with you guys. Yeah. And, and I think generally for people, uh, you know, if you could solve any problem in the world, just, just, and we all can't, right? Like I, I'm not out there, you know, to, in reverse of what I just said, I'm not out there trying to cure cancer. Like I, I get that. But, but at the same time, when you think about what you're doing and the value you're creating, the problems you're solving, I just, I just feel like, if you're, especially if you're going to start a company, start something that if you win, it actually matters, not just to yourself and not just financially, but actually matters. And it's not about, you know, being a, a crazy do-gooder or anything along those lines. It's just about solving things that matter. There are so many problems in the world. You know, if, if a simple example for me would be, I have a hard time with startups that are doing things like optimizing ad tech. <laughs> you know, do you want to wake up? Do you want to wake up every single day of your life and figure out how to sh- shove more ads in people's faces? Uh, maybe you do, and maybe that's important to you, and that's great. You know, like at the end of the day, more power to you. What do what you want. But for me, that doesn't feel like even if I win and I put a billion more ads in front of people's faces, have I made the world at all remotely better? I'm not sure. And so, you know, maybe that comes with with time or maybe it comes with just doing a bunch of stuff that actually didn't matter in the world and then saying, Oh, that was kind of pointless. Uh, (laughs) you know, to just think about problems that actually matter. Uh, and you see a lot of startups doing stuff that I think even if this works, nobody, nobody really cares. Um, so, you know, there's, that has nothing to do with things I believe in that others won't believe in, but it just, to me, that's a, it's an important part, I think, of why I'm doing Highline Beta because I do think we have an opportunity to solve interesting problems at scale. Mm-hmm. And the last question I'd like to ask you is, if you were to imagine your 20-year-old self, so this is someone probably, you're in your third year, McGill, so you're probably starting Meet Media at that point. <laughs> so like when you're actually starting out Meet Media, if that 20-year-old uh, Ben were to look at you right now running Highline Beta, what do you think the emotional reaction of that Ben would be to what you're doing of the, the young Ben to the old Ben. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the young Ben had a lot more hair. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> uh, like down past his shoulders hair, which I don't know if there's even any pictures on the internet of that, but um, no, I, I think, I think, I think the 20 year old version of me would be probably surprised and, and think that what I'm doing now is pretty cool because he would have had no idea uh, about, I mean, barely had an idea about startups, but certainly had no idea about, you know, raising venture capital or investing or, you know, even the, the variety of companies that exist. Because back in 1996, you know, most of the people were either going into a, the agency service business or you were going into web hosting. Now, like, look at the stuff that exists now and the range of stuff that you can get involved in. So I think that's probably what the 20-year-old would be surprised by is, wow, I can't believe what's happened with technology, with startups, with the scale of things. 
uh, and and you know would be maybe pleased to see that the the forty four year old version of me got his hands into a lot of different pies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then as we uh, finish off this interview, is there something that we didn't touch upon that you wish we could have touched upon? No, I think that was good. That was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I had, I had a lot of fun. Like you have, you have such an interesting story, and we. Yeah, I tried digging into a lot of aspects of it. You still have so much more. I, I'm sure I didn't dig into, but I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your story with myself and my audience. I really had a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It, hopefully, it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully, it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different, maybe challenging yourself, being courageous, who knows. But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform. Really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content. But at the same time, also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that, you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees <laughs> don't worry uh everything will still be free it's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that i can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further. So your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute. And so, yeah, just check out the website, go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder. All right. Thank you.